Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. This week, CID Student Ambassador Alexandra Gonzalez interviews Miguel Angel Santos, adjunct professor in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and senior research fellow at the Center for International Development at Harvard University. Miguel talks about CID's research initiative aimed at exploring export diversification opportunities and understanding the potential biting constraints that Panama can run into in the process of shifting gears towards a sustainable economic growth. Hi, Miguel. Thank you for being at the Center for International Development Weekly Speaker Series. We just heard from you a presentation on the report that you launched on Panama. So the Center for International Development, in collaboration with the Inter-American Development Bank, developed a research initiative. And could you tell us more about this initiative, how it was born, how it was developed? Well, it was born at the Inter-American Development Bank. The bank was a key financer of the expansion of the canal, which is a great project undertaken by the Panamanian Public Administration with great success. And the Inter-American Development Bank wanted to finance a study that will help the Panamanian authorities to think how they could make the most out of the canal how they could increase the spillovers to the rest of the economy for the canal so that now that uh, larger ships will be going through, how can that translate in higher benefits uh, on the rest of the economic sectors and for the population of Panama at large. Great. So among your findings, you mentioned that over the past decade, Panama has been one of the fastest growing economies in the world, and that this growth has been driven mainly by services, construction, commercial activity, And this had brought uh, an increase in the GDP per capita and also a reduction in poverty rates, mostly in urban areas. What do you think were the factors uh, that allowed this uh, to happen in Panama? Well, the, the, what has happened in Panama, it's impressive because the canal was held by the United States authorities uh, up until the 31st of December 1999, as per the... Carter-Torrijos Treaty, it was transferred to the Panamanian authorities. And since then, the Panamanians have done something that uh, the U.S. authorities uh, never cared to do. It wasn't their business, which is maximizing the economic activity that surrounds uh, the transshipment and everything that occurs at the canal. So they have developed a large industry, very competitive of services. These are services that are exportable. And in that sense, Panama represents a very special case of development in Latin America because you don't find a country that excels at exporting services until they are at a very much higher development stage. So Panama has developed a network of ports, has developed networks to help multinational companies handle their logistics. They unpack goods in the ports and then distribute them to the rest of the countries in Central America. So they have also developed a, an air hub that it's impressive. So nowadays from Tocumen Airport, which is currently under expansion, you can fly to anywhere else in the world. Panama has a flag airline, Copa, that has a tremendous reach. So all those are uh, the key services that have uh, leveraged the growth of the Panamanian economy. Now, those services, uh, uh, retail, uh, business services, logistics, they require structures. So they, these services have fueled the demand 
for non-residential construction. So we've seen a lot of not only public infrastructure, which we have seen now there is a metro at Panama City, mm -hmm. which they didn't have a years ago, but they also have lots of warehouse, lots of office buildings, lots of roads, lots of facilities, shopping malls, uh, sprawling here and there. So it's a tremendous boom, mostly of non-residential construction, fueled in part by the need of infrastructure of this uh, service sector that expanded on the activities surrounding the canal. And in that, uh, that was the way in which low-skilled workers in Panama were connected to the growth process because uh, many low-skilled workers were allowed to move from the low-productivity agricultural sector, subsistence agriculture, to the construction sector, which according to the numbers we did, have a productivity seven times higher than agriculture as it was done in Panama. So that is what is behind the reduction in inequality, which is modest. Panama is still among the most unequal countries in the world, but steadily reducing inequality, a significant reduction in poverty among urban centers, uh, these complex modern activities that the mine infrastructure typically develop at places where you have lots of knowledge, and those places are cities. So we have also seen accordingly a migration from the rural environment to the urban environment, and more than rural-urban, from the province to Panama City. And that is something that they need to think about is if they don't want if they want to keep that growth being like harmonious growth uh, from an urban city planning standards. Right, and you mentioned so it's uh, more an urban growth, but apart from the Panama Colon axis, how has this growth uh, improved the quality of life of the provinces, and what are maybe the potential binding constraints of inequality? We see that the construction sector is already beginning to decelerate, how will this have an impact on inequality in terms of income of the low-skilled workers, but also in terms of uh, how do we protect the employment of these people or the transition again to the agricultural sector that was... Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's one of the main challenges, is that the non-residential construction, they produce construction for the rest of the economy. So they cannot grow at infinite more than the rest of the economy. So once you provide the stock of infrastructure needed, then the rest of the economy starts functioning on that stock of infrastructure and they grow and they might need further construction and buildings, but much less. So that will decelerate construction and will decelerate the main connecting mechanisms in Panama from growth to, to inequality and poverty and low-skilled workers. So what can be done? That's a great question. One thing that can be done is keep the good momentum in the service sector. Although Panama has grown, uh, it displays no sign of deceleration in the service sector. Moreover, they just expanded the canal, so you would expect that that can be in time because for the world trade traffic will take time to start shipping in boats of different size at more or less frequency, so it will take time to adapt. But once it happens, you will have a lot more uh, load going through the canal, and that can give rise to services, and the growth is going to keep on. So that's the first thing. And the, one of the key binding constraints we found for the service sector to keep on growing is human capital. These uh, services that Panama have developed are extremely skilled and sophisticated, and they need highly skilled people that the Panamanian educational system is not producing yet. So they have benefited from 
large wave of immigrants into Panama that have come uh, on a conscious effort done by the Panamanian administrations over the years to bring to Panama multinational companies uh, to create special economic zones so that Panama have a supply of highly qualified labor uh, to keep the momentum of the service sector. So that's, that is the way. What we've seen is that the premiums that these foreigners are making are very high and that it's an indication that they are expensive, which is an indication they are scarce. So because these, these services are exported, you need to export them competitively. So if salaries are extremely high because uh, talent is scarce, you lose competitiveness. So the key, obviously, is the effort the Panamanian authorities have made on education. So they have improved coverage of primary, secondary, and tertiary. The quality is still not there. Uh, you don't get yet to the university. Even if they start making the things right today, it will take some time. Some the, those kids go through the system and become labor supply for this complex sector. So in the meantime, you need more foreigners. You don't need less foreigners. And one thing that the Panamanian authorities have done uh, that is very hard to understand is that they have restricted the movement of highly skilled labor. And every five or six years, they did a something called crisol de razas. They legalized all the low-skilled workers that were illegal in Panama. So we told the, the administration, you have built a machine of inequality because by legalizing all the low-skilled labor at the base of the pyramid, you are bringing down salaries for the low-skilled people and by keeping a lot of restrictions on the foreigners arriving and moving throughout the Panama economy, you have made that scarce. So you basically are building an inequality machine. And that is not always understood that if uh, foreigners are making a high premium, you don't need less. Obviously, no one wants to pay a foreigner more for a work that a local could do. So if these foreigners are making more, it's because they have a knowledge, uh, because they have developed that knowledge somewhere else and are bringing it to Panama. They have a knowledge that is not to be found in the rest of the Panamanian economy. So you need more of those. You need mechanisms to transfer that knowledge to the Panamanians. And in the meantime, uh, you need more of those and, and you need to stop this uh, massive legalization operations of, of low-skilled workers if you want to stop inequality from keep on growing. Right. So we see uh, in the research that you've done that actually Panama would benefit from attracting and retaining more foreign high-skilled workers. Uh, however, there are some anti-immigrant feelings in the population. Could you tell us more about how is... Uh, the high-skilled uh, foreigner workers benefiting the local workers if they have, like, maybe better conditions to work, better salaries? What do you... Well, find? we just know that the workers that work in companies where there are more foreigners, the Panamanian workers make higher salaries. And that is true by company and by district. So if you are in a work in a district and the district have more foreigners, that's associated to higher wages for the Panamanian. And I guess the explanation is relatively simple because producing highly complex things that have the highest value added needs a lot of different knowledges. And you don't have all that knowledge in Panama, so you import that knowledge, you bring the Panamanians that mixes with that knowledge, and that makes them more productive. And that is particularly true for low-skilled Panamanians. Like the highest improvements in wages came from low-skilled Panamanians working in industries with high share of foreigners 
in the industry where they were and in the district where they were. So that basically means that the foreigners are not substituting the Panamanians. Uh, not, not the foreigners at the high end of the scale in salaries uh, are not substituting the Panamanians, are complementing them. And because they are complementing them, they are not taking the, their jobs away. They are creating jobs for them or taking advantage of the, the different knowledge pool to make them more productive. So that's what we found. It's a finding that it's solid. We have the census's data. We have run. We have a, a get advice from the best econometricians here at the Kennedy School, proved that all over again, went back to the government. It's something that it's, uh, to me, it's relatively straightforward to explain, but in Panama it came out as a surprise. And among authorities and, and with some discontent among the media in general. Right, and there is also another uh, number that you mentioned, which is uh, countries like Singapore and places like Hong Kong uh, have around 40 to 50 percent of the population uh, are foreigners, uh, while in Panama it's around 5 percent, so we still have a lot uh, to yeah, grow. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> when you, the Panamanians are proud of their country, and they have to be, because it's been a tremendously successful country. So they have become ambitious. When you ask a Panamanian, they say, we want to be like Singapore. Uh, Singapore is also an economy based on services that are tradable. So it's a, it's a great aspiration. Now, again, those services are very complex. They require different knowledges that not even the Singaporean economy is able to produce. So they have 46% of their labor force are foreigners. If you want to be Hong Kong, that's 30, 38. Uh, so if you want to be Canada, well, it's 22. So you're still very far away uh, from what is the level of knowledge immigrants bring in economies you want to look like. So it's funny, they want to be like Singapore, but they don't want to have the same percentage of foreigners Singapore have. <laughs> right. So in terms of the development in the, in the provinces, uh, you also developed a productive diversification study and how we can bring more inclusive and sustainable growth to the rest of Panama. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes, uh, uh, because the province in Panama, it's, it's lagging so much behind. Everything happens at the Panama City. The airport hub is there. The canal is there. The ports are there. Uh, all the pool of knowledge is there. Uh, but there are nine provinces in Panama. Uh, so one of our recommendations to the government is create an investment promotion strategy to bring new investment to the provinces. And, well, the, the benefits that the provinces have, it's that um, lower labor, that for the type of work that might be able to do, might as well be well-educated. So in Panama, the demand of labor, it's very active, so the salary of equilibrium is high, so it can only be paid by relatively sophisticated. So we did some work of looking at the nine provinces of Panama, realizing what they know how to do already, in which activities they have a competitive advantages, uh, and we look for activities that are similar to those activities that have a higher value added, and we provided a sort of roadmap to diversification because not all the economic activities are equally likely in all the places. They are more prone to come up in a place if you want to create a technology hub, and a technology hub needs 100 professions, and you have three or four, that's bound not to happen there. 
But if you want to create an industry uh, of processed foods that requires 80 capabilities and you have 55, well, there's a chance. So what we provided the authorities with is a roadmap of every province, what do they do today, what knowledge is embedded there, and given what they already know, what industries are likely to show up there. So that when they think, I want to attract investment to Chiriqui, yeah, it's not investment. It's a certain type of specific investment that fits the conditions of Chiriqui, and we did that for most of the provinces. Some provinces are not in a bad position to attract investment. Incidentally, Chiriqui is one. Others are in a terrible situation like Darien, which is a province very close to Colombia, near the Tapón, that is sort of close to Colombia but doesn't benefit from any interaction because there's a jungle of mood in between. So that is a place where they know how to do very, very little things. And given that they know how to do little things, they cannot learn to do new things. So that's a, a classic knowledge trap that is hard to break and that has to be broken by strategic bets, the government making a strategic bet on a sector and hopefully being lucky enough that it sparks uh, some industrial activity and from there they can start growing. That, that's a difficult place. But then Chiriqui in the north... Cocle, some places that have are in a good position to develop new industries. Great. Uh, so, what's what's forward? Do you plan to work on the implementation in Panama? What are the plans? Uh? Well, the government contacted us to help them implement some of the immigration changes we suggested. Uh, that money was uh, is to come from the United Nations Development Program. So we are at the moment discussing the contract. I think there are some really low-hanging fruits that we have urged the administration to to undertake and will not cause them any trouble. And others will do require some leadership to pass on and adopting a new narrative. But for instance, allowing the dependence of expatriates to work. It's a really low-hanging fruit for the Panamanian economy. You have a pool of foreigners, for sure highly qualified, that doesn't have a, don't have a work permit. I think that's an easy one. Uh, changing professions that are restricted to Panamanians, it's different. That's something that typically there are labor unions around those professions. It will have to be the result of a negotiation. So it's a more... Uh, it's an undertaking that will demand more leadership, but others are relatively simple, like extending working visas for five years and not one year. Well, I'm sure there will be some lobby from uh, lawyers in Panama that benefit from foreigners having to issue their visa every year. But that's a small group with respect to a large group. You can benefit not only the foreigners, but the Panamanians that get higher salaries from working with the foreigners. So thank you, Miguel, for explaining to our audience your analysis on the Panamanian economic growth, uh, the binding constraints and all the proposals on uh, policy recommendations. And thank you for being with us. Is there any other uh, final message that you would give? No, just the remind the people that all, uh, either the presentation I just did today and all the documents, because we are a university, we do this for nonprofit. So all the documents derived from our Panama initiative are to the public, uh, are free for you to revise and read, and all comments are welcome. Thank you and congratulations for this great initiative. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.